Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Church. Uh, glad you're with us this morning on this cold, frosty morning. We spent about 15 minutes digging my car out this morning to get here, so I appreciate y'all's dedication to the church and dedication to God's Word. Um, if you did not get a listening guide, please raise your hand and get one, and uh, Alex or somebody in the back is going to get you a copy that's going to help you follow along with this sermon. Um, so as I was thinking about this sermon, and one taker there, um, it occurred to me that uh, there's kind of been an interesting pop culture development over the last 10, 15 years or so, and it's the fascination we have with zombies. It's just weird. They're just everywhere right now. Um, and I'm not sure if it was a cause or an effect, but either way, one kind of element of this fascination was a couple of books by a guy named Max Brooks. He's the son of the famous comedian Mel Brooks. Uh, the first was called The Zombie Survival Guide. And it's, it's very, it's very tongue-in-cheek, but it's also very serious. It's got on, okay, if there were to be a zombie outbreak, here are the steps that you should take in order to be prepared and to survive uh, this horrible, horrible nightmare. And then he wrote a follow-up book, which is actually quite good, called World War Z. And it, it's, it's the real-life tale of how a small uh, outbreak of this zombie virus kind of spreads all over the world in this massive outbreak, and humanity has to unite to put down this awful zombie apocalypse. Um, it, it's really good. I'd recommend it if you haven't read it. But under my, underpinning all of this is this assumption. There's a one basic assumption in all of zombie lore, and that is that the living dead cannot coexist with the living. There's this basic assumption that if there were to be a zombie uprising, a zombie apocalypse, that would be a bad thing. Zombies cannot coexist with the living. Uh, if you watch any war or, or any uh, movie, uh, read any book about this, any TV show, it's going to share that basic assumption. The walking dead cannot live like the living. And in a way, that is Paul's point in our text this morning, Colossians 2, 20 through 23, Paul is writing to this group of believers, the Colossians, and the most important thing about them is that they are dead. They have died in Christ to the world. And that is something that is true of every single person that puts their faith in Jesus. We are united with his death and his burial and his resurrection. We are dead to the world in a sense. We are the walking dead. And so we cannot live like the world. And that is Paul's point to the Colossians. It's his point to you this morning, brothers and sisters. If you have believed in Christ, you have died with Christ. Therefore, do not submit to legalism. And we'll explain what that means and get into that in just a second. But read with me, if you would, Colossians 2, chapter, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body but they are of no value stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's word. Pray with me if you would. Father, as we turn our eyes this morning to your word, to the very words that you have spoken and are speaking to us, would you show us what your promises are? Would you give us grace to believe in them? And would you give us a fresh appreciation and desire for your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
So before we get into the text, we need some definitions. First of all, what is legalism in the first place? You may have heard the term before, but what does it actually mean? Well, legalism is essentially a misuse of the law. So if we're going to understand what a misuse of the law is, we should first understand what a correct use of the law would be, especially of God's law, because there's all kinds of misconceptions about this. When the Bible speaks of the law, it is usually referring to the Pentateuch. It's referring to especially the Mosaic law sections in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But more broadly, God's law can refer to God's moral decrees, God's self-revelation of himself all throughout Scripture. We need to understand what the purpose of the law giving was. And it's really, really helpful to that end to understand the timing of the giving of the law, especially the Mosaic law. The the law giving really begins in Exodus chapter 20. And this is an easy question. What happens before Exodus chapter 20? 19 other chapters in the book of Exodus. So if we go straight to Exodus 20, we might miss the context. Fortunately, Exodus, Exodus 20 begins with these two verses. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And and you need to note a couple of things about those two verses. One is that God says, I am the Lord your God. He's speaking to Israel. He is already their God. He is not saying, I'm going to become your God or I conditionally will be your God. I already am your God. And note, too, what he says he's already done. He says, I have brought you out of the house of slavery in Egypt. And Alex pointed this out a couple of weeks ago. This is the great paradigmatic salvific event in the Old Testament. This is the big picture it gives us of our coming salvation in Jesus. There's all kinds of parallels. God has taken his people from one kingdom and transferred them to another. He has redeemed them under the blood of a lamb. He has covered over their sins and spared them from judgment. Any of that sound familiar? This is the great picture of the gospel we have in the Old Testament, and that is the context of the law giving. When God gives the law to Israel, he has already saved them. He has already made them his people, and then he gives them the law. So if God has already saved his people before he gives them the law, what can't a purpose of the law be? to save his people. The law is not given to do that. God's people from start to finish are saved by grace through faith. And then God gives them the law to show them how to live as his people. But it is not there ever to take the place of the saving grace of God. And that is true also in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.21 and Galatians 6.2 that as Christians, we are to fulfill the law of Christ. We still have things that we are commanded to obey. But from first to last, we are saved by grace through faith. And then as we become the people of God, he gives us his law and we obey by grace through faith and especially by the power of the Holy Spirit. Never to get saved, never to keep us saved, but always to enjoy what God has purchased for us, to live as the people of God and to draw close to him. We, we are not saved by the law, but in this wonderful way, we are saved for the law. It's our, it's our roadmap to enjoying God more and more as his people. So with all that said, what is a misuse of the law? How can we use the law incorrectly? It's very simple. We reverse this order. 
We, we take the law and we use it as a way to get saved or a way to stay saved. Now, we can do this with God's law, and that's the most famous example in the, in the, in the New Testament is people doing this, but we can really do it with any kind of law, any kind of law whatsoever. Now, there's a crowd called the Judaizers that shows up a lot in the New Testament, uh, enemies of Paul trying to get Gentiles to essentially become obedient, observant Jews before they can be saved. And the big thing there was circumcision. But we see other examples too, like in Colossians chapter 2. These false teachers in Colossae probably had some Judaizer in them, but there's, there's some mixture of other things as well, like Greek philosophy. But the common theme is this effort to get the Colossians to do something, to do anything, to conform some kind of law or standard or obedience in order to get saved. The gospel was not enough for them. So legalism, in short, is using any kind of law or ritual or practice or behavioral standard to bridge the gap with God as an alternative or a supplement to the gospel, a way to get saved or a way to be saved. And Paul in our text commands the Colossians, and he commands you, do not buy into this. Do not submit to legalism. And he gives us in this text a whopping seven reasons not to do this. So the first reason found there in uh, verse 20, you have died to the world's control. The first word there is if, but this is not meaning that Paul is doubting what he is about to say. It's, it's better thought of as since. Not if you have died with Christ, as though it's, it may or may not be true, but since you have died with Christ. He, he's taking us back to verses 11 and 12, reminding the Colossians that they have experienced the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus through their union with him. And we actually looked at this way, way, way back at the end of November, and we said that union with Christ is faith in Christ. It is a reconciled relationship with God through the work of Christ. And, and this here sets up a contrast with the text we looked at last week that David unpacked for us in verses 18 through 20. The, the false teachers don't hold fast to the head. They don't have union with Christ. Believers do, and by virtue of that union, they have shared in the death of Christ. And specifically, that is a death to the elemental spirits of the world. This again takes us all the way back to verse 8 of this chapter, where Paul warned the Colossians not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. These elemental spirits are demonic entities. They are spiritual enemies of God and of his people. And Paul links them to philosophy and empty deceit because demons are behind all of that. Demons are active in the world and they love to prop up any kind of way to get people to work their way to God. They don't care what it is as long as you're, you're doing something, striving to do something to get God's grace instead of turning to Jesus in repentance and faith. It's the great alternative to the gospel. But Paul says in verse 15 that God has conquered them. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. Jesus has beaten these spiritual enemies on the cross, and he has led them as humbled, humiliated captives in his victory parade, as we read several weeks ago. And now Paul piles it on. He says the Colossians have died 
in Christ to them. It, it, it literally means that they have died out from under them, out from under their control. And if you think about it, uh, this is kind of a trope in movies and TV. Somebody fakes their death to get away from something, to get out from under something. Uh, the bad guy will, will be running from the good guys. They'll have some kind of proof, some kind of evidence against him. And as a way to get out from under what they have on him, the bad guy will fake his death. And they'll think, oh, he's dead, he's gone, we can give up on him. But he shows up someplace later in a, under a different name, a different identity in order to get out from under their control. Paul is setting up a contrast here. The old life versus the new life. They, they used to be under the control of these demonic entities. They had goods on them. They had to live up to their standards, do what these, these spiritual powers said. But, but now that they have died in Christ, that's no longer true. They are out from under their control. And, and this language is definitive. You don't have a choice about being dead. You're either dead or you are alive, and you can't go back to being alive once you're dead. So there has been a decisive, definitive, once and for all break with the control of these demonic entities. The Colossians were under the control of these spiritual powers, and Christ has yanked them out from under their control by his life and his death and his resurrection. Paul says this is true of all Christians. We're not under the control of these spiritual powers anymore. We have died out from under their control. Do you feel this morning as though someone or something has control over you? Maybe it's a boss, a family member, someone you feel like you just can't let down, someone's approval who you simply have to have. Or your life is going to come unraveled. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's an idol. Something you just can't live without or your life is going to go to pieces. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ this morning, you have died out from under the control of this world. No one but Christ is allowed to have control over your life. You are dead to this world's control. And if that's the case, then there is no reason any longer to submit to the world's regulations and standards. And that is our second reason not to submit to legalism found there in verse 20. The dead don't submit to the world's regulations. Paul says there, as if you were still alive to the world. He is deepening and heightening that contrast. He's already made the case that the Colossians are not under the control of these spiritual powers, and he now just makes that, that contrast even more clear, that the way of life being preached to them by these false teachers belongs to their old way of life, not their current way of life. When they were under the control of the world, it was totally normal, even expected that they would live up to certain teachings and standards and rules and regulations to try to attain salvation. That was normal. That belonged to their old way of life. But now they are in Christ. They have died to the world, and that sort of living just doesn't fit anymore. Submitting to these regulations would be tantamount to undoing their union with Christ, reversing their, their death and their burial and resurrection with Christ. They would have to somehow become alive again to the world in order for submitting to the world's regulations to make any sense whatsoever. But that's clearly impossible in Paul's mind. Dead is dead. They don't have any choice in the matter. 
So submitting to the laws and regulations of the world is totally incompatible with who they are in Christ. I want you to imagine for a moment that you don't like your job. For some of you, it might be easier than others. But, but imagine that you, you, you go to work and there's all these rules that don't make any sense and they're very constricting and confining. And, and maybe your desk is breaking down and your chair has a thin, worn-out cushion and you just hate it there. And then one day out of the blue, you get the offer for your dream job at the dream company, dream salary, everything you could ever want from employment. And of course, you take it. You quit your old job and you head off to the new job. But then after a few weeks or a few months, you begin to think, I wonder what's going on at the old job. I, I wonder if that work is still getting done. So, so, you, so you go back and you, you sit back down at your, your old chair with a thin cushion that, that hurt your back. You're, you sit at the old broken down desk that gave you splinters. You, you start doing the old work again, being mindful of all those rules that don't make any sense, that make it really hard to get your work done. That's essentially what Paul was saying It happens to the Colossians, that, that if they go back and submit to these old ways of doing things, that's essentially what they're doing. They've been set free from that. They've died out from under the control of these powers, out from under the authority of these rules and regulations. And if they go back, they go back to those things, they're essentially saying that they haven't died in Christ. They, they are reversing that all over again. They're saying that they're alive to the world. And Paul says they can't do that. And he's saying that we can't do that. We can't. Live according to the world's rules, the world's standards. If there is some standard, some expectation, some New Year's resolution or something that you've set for yourself that you just have to achieve to feel like all is right with the world, that is tantamount to saying that you have not died in Christ. You are saying that those things have authority over your life when they don't have that authority anymore. You are trying to undo your salvation in Christ and get it by some other route. You need to forget trying to live up to that worldly standard. You need to live in Christ and for Christ instead. These regulations aren't just incompatible with who they are in Christ, Paul says. They're also powerless. And we see that in our third reason not to submit to legalism. In verse 21, that legalism only covers external things. Paul gives three examples of these types of regulations imposed by the elemental spirits and taught by the false teachers. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Notice, first of all, that these are all negative. They deal exclusively with what you are not supposed to be doing. And it's not quite clear whether Paul is actually quoting the false teachers here or he's just mocking them. They're boasting about these great spiritual insights they have, this great access to God that they have discovered. And Paul says... Really, you're just kind of talking about external, temporary things that, that don't matter a whole lot in the long run. Either way, these things all focus squarely on externals. First of all, don't handle, don't touch something, or you, you might get defiled by that. Don't taste. This is really kind of the key thing here, that this is probably talking about dietary laws and restrictions. David pointed out for us last week that these things have become a very, very big part of Jewish identity. They have their roots in the Old Testament. God did place restrictions for a time on what his people were to eat and drink. And somehow or other, these false teachers have co-opted that. They've made that a part of this ascetic regimen of getting access to these spiritual insights by denying the body. So there are certain things that you, you should not taste if you want to get these insights, they say. 
Finally, don't touch. Almost the same meaning as the first two terms, but with more emphasis. Don't handle, don't taste, don't even touch these things, or you're going to be defiled by them. Don't lay a finger on them, or you're going to be defiled, and you can't have access to these, these great discoveries that they have. And this can all sound pretty good at first, right? It sounds very plausible, because we know that, that some things, some foods can be harmful to us physically and maybe even spiritually. And it's good food for thought, no pun intended, in a country where we are kind of obsessed with eating and drinking. I mean, wouldn't it make sense if, if you knew that you were prone to overeating to, to prohibit certain foods altogether? If you know that you're tempted to overeat on potato chips or ice cream or cake or bacon or, or, or whatever, shouldn't you just cut those things out of your diet altogether? And then if you know that they're good for you to, to cut those things out, wouldn't it be a good idea to get the people around you to, to not do those things too? I mean, it certainly isn't going to do any harm to them, right? And the same thing is true of drinks. If you know that alcohol or coffee or sports drinks can be bad for you, why not just steer clear of them altogether? And why not put some rules in place so the people around you won't have to deal with that either? I mean, at worst case, you're going to be saying no to some things that you can easily get along without. What could be the harm? Well, that's the wrong way of thinking, for it leads us into forbidding things that God created for our good to be received with thanksgiving. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars who consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That's you and me. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Abstinence from food does not get us any closer to God. Instead, it leads to us saying no to things that he created to be received with thanksgiving and joy, things for our good. But there's a much bigger problem here because these rules and regulations only go skin deep. They don't deal with the heart. And it, let's say you have a problem with bacon, Right, you, you, you love bacon. You just can't get enough bacon. You want to eat it all the time. And, and you finally realize that this is not a healthy obsession for you to have. So you're going to cut bacon out of your life altogether. And it's true. If you do that, you will not overindulge in bacon. You will not eat too much bacon by definition. But you haven't dealt with the heart issue. If you ate bacon when you felt lonely or sad or anxious about something, and all you do is cut out bacon, you haven't dealt with the fact that you have a heart-level problem. You haven't turned that area of your heart and your life over to Christ to fill it. And the same thing is true of alcohol. Binge drinking and alcoholism, big problems in our country. And if that is a problem for you, it may be necessary for you to abstain from that at least for a time. But if you never deal with the heart-level reasons for why you can't make it through a day without a drink, you haven't really dealt with the problem, even if you do stop abusing that stuff. There may be some area of your life, some place in your heart that you have not entrusted to Christ, and that is going to show up in your life sooner or later. 
Abstaining from food or drink, even if they get you good outward physical results, is like putting Band-Aid on skin cancer. You might not see it. The people in your life might not see it, but sooner or later, it is going to eat you out from the inside. It's going to keep festering and spreading until it kills you. Where in your life this morning are you trying to deal with a heart-level problem with a skin-deep solution? Maybe it's drunkenness, maybe it's gluttony, and you're, you're hoping if you just abstain from those things, that is going to solve your problem. Maybe you're addicted to a TV show or your, your smartphone. Maybe there's a relationship at work that's bordering on the inappropriate. Maybe you can't walk by a sale without dropping some cash, doing a little retail therapy. All those things have real, outward, visible behaviors that you probably need to address. But if they are not accompanied by heart-level repentance and trust in Christ alone to satisfy you and a commitment to seek that satisfaction in Him alone every day, you're only scratching the surface of that problem. The false teachers were content with that. They were content with surface-level behaviors. And they thought that if they just did those things, they'd get access to all these great, deep, spiritual truths. And Paul says, no, they're just focused on externals. And they're only focused on things that don't ultimately last. That is his point in verse 22, where we find our fourth reason not to submit to legalism. Because legalism only covers things that perish. Paul says that the regulations of the false teachers don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, only refers to things that perish with use. It makes clear that he's probably talking primarily, if not exclusively, about food and drink. And the issue with the dietary laws prescribed by these false teachers isn't just that they fail to touch the heart, but it's that they focus on things that are temporary at the expense of things that are eternal. Food and drink, quite obviously, they come into the body and then they leave. They're, they're not with you anymore. And Jesus points this out in Mark chapter 7, verses 19 through 20. He says that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile them, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it is then expelled. See the contrast here between what goes into the stomach and what goes into or what comes out of a person's heart. If you leave here today and you go to Taco Bell on the way home and you eat a bad burrito and it makes you sick to your stomach, that's going to be unpleasant. But sooner or later, one way or the other, it's not going to be with you anymore. It's temporary. But Jesus goes on in Mark chapter 7. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Paul is saying here what Jesus is saying. Don't get wrapped up in what's temporary. Don't get wrapped up in what you eat. The things you eat and drink are not going to bring you closer to God. They're not going to take you farther away from God. You need to be looking at your heart and the actions that your heart produces. And Paul is not anti-action. He's not saying that you can just have good intentions but never actually do anything. But what he is saying is that a focus exclusively on what is temporary and transient is going to take your focus off of what is eternal. You're going to miss the point altogether. 
Now, in, in our day and age, we might not be tempted to think that what we eat or drink is going to bring us closer to God or further from God. Most of us don't struggle with that. But, but we can all fall into the temptation of focusing more on what is temporary than on what is eternal. We can long for an excellent meal more than we long for the excellencies of Christ. We can be more concerned with whether we're eating too many carbs or getting enough whole foods than whether we're eating enough of the Word of God. Ask yourself this morning, where is your focus? Are you focused on the eternal or on the temporary? When you sat down to plan your budget this year, where was your focus? Making sure all the bills were covered, making sure you were setting aside some money for a rainy day, maybe for a car payment, maybe for, for a kitchen upgrade, all good things. But did you consider how you might invest in eternity? How you might invest in making sure that people around the world and all over Crestwood, Kentucky can hear the life-changing message of the gospel? The next time you consider a new opportunity, whether at work, in your schooling, in relationships, in finances, wherever, ask yourself, what decision will I be most happy with and will God be most happy with in 200 trillion years? Will you invest in what will only last for a day or what will last forever? Legalism makes us focus just on the temporary, but the gospel makes us focus on the everlasting. But legalism doesn't just focus on the wrong things. It has more problems than that. Paul tells us in our fifth reason not to submit to legalism in verse 22 that legalism has a weak foundation. Paul says that these regulations taught by the false teachers are based on human precepts and teachings. Now, there's a very, very strong parallel here in the Greek between this verse and the Greek translation of Isaiah 29, 13, which reads, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Israel in Isaiah's day had substituted ritual and tradition and outward obedience for truly knowing and seeking the Lord. And the Colossians are being tempted to go down that exact same path. And this expression, precepts and teachings, takes us back again to verse 8 of this chapter where Paul warns them not to be taken captive by human traditions. And these precepts and teachings are probably the concretization, the, the expression, the working out of these human traditions. These are human traditions at work in everyday life. The word translated precepts is found three places total in the New Testament. And each and every place, it stands in sharp contrast to the commandments of God. Paul is saying to the Colossians, you have died in Christ. Why are you tempted to obey the commands of men? It should be obvious why this is a bad thing. Paul said in verse 19, again, the false teachers have no connection whatsoever to Christ because the only way that we can approach God is on his terms through Christ. We can't invent or discover or figure out some way through our own understanding, to get to God. We have to get to God on His terms. And interestingly enough, the way that we get to God is, is we don't. God comes down to us. Everybody here has probably heard the story of the Tower of Babel. 
And you might not have thought about it in these terms, but it is perhaps the clearest picture we have in all of Scripture of people trying to work their way up to God. It's there in Genesis 11, where the men building the tower say to each other, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth." They are literally trying to build a building that will get them up to heaven, get them up to God. But what does God do? He says, let's go down and let's confuse their language so that they may not understand each other. And the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth so that they left off building the city. We human beings are great at figuring out ways to try to work our way up to God. You give any society a little bit of time, and they're going to invent some religion or some religion substitute that does this. Israel tried to do this with the Mosaic Law, tried to misuse the Mosaic Law as a means of getting to God. And the Greeks tried to do this with philosophy and wisdom and insight. And the false teachers in Colossae tried some kind of combination of the two. But the, the problem with all of these efforts, just like the Tower of Babel, is that they all come down to human traditions and precepts and teachings trying to get up to God instead of receiving the God who has come down to them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are never going to work our way up to God. We have to let God come down to us and save us. As any builder knows, the best house can topple if it is built on a weak foundation. Legalism has a lot of problems. It's not a good house to begin with. But it is even more precarious when we realize that it is based on the weak tradition of humanity of human precepts and teachings. Ask yourself this morning, are you approaching God on His terms through Christ or on your own terms? When you're about to pray, do you find yourself running through your spiritual resume, trying to make sure everything checks out before you're going to cry out to God? When you're tempted by sin, what holds you back? Do you fear to break the law of Christ and grieve the heart of God? Or do you fear breaking some promise or standard that you have set for yourself or that somebody else has set on you? Coming to God on His terms means that we give up control. We give up any hope of setting the parameters for the relationship. We stop trying to close the gap with God with a life built on the foundation of human wisdom and human tradition and ideas. And instead, we draw near to God through the blood of the one who has come down to us, who bridged the gap by taking on our flesh and dying on the cross for our sins and rising again to reconcile us to God. That is the way we draw near to God, on His terms, not on ours. Legalism is based on human tradition, Paul says, and it fails to get us to God. But he doesn't stop there. He further exposes the empty promises of legalism in our sixth reason not to submit to it. The appeal of legalism is an illusion there in verse 23. Now, now Paul is conceding something here in this verse. He concedes that legalism at first blush appears to have some benefits. It has the appearance or reputation for wisdom. 
But that's all it is. It's an appearance. It's visual only. These teachings are a lot like the philosophy of verse 8. Empty. And if the Colossians just look at the surface of these false teachers' lives, they might see a lot of things that look really, really good. But it's all a sham. It's all deceitful and illusory. But what is the nature of this illusion? What makes it look so good and appealing to people? Well, one reason says that this kind of teaching promotes self-made religion. It gets people to engage in voluntary worship. Again, this, this may be a mocking of Paul or, or uh, by Paul, or it may be using the, the teachings of these false teachers in a sarcastic way. Legalism gets people to put themselves in voluntary servitude, in false religion, in false worship. And it's pretty easy to mock a philosophy or viewpoint when it only has a couple of teachers, a couple of followers. It's part of why it's so easy to mock Westboro Baptist Church, because it's basically one guy's family, uh, just a bunch of cranks who all know each other. But once the number of disciples grow, once it gets a lot of numbers, it kind of gets critical mass, it starts to look kind of impressive by sheer numbers alone. But this is just an illusion, Paul says. Don't be impressed by the fact that these guys can attract followers who put themselves under their control. There is no fullness which is only found in Christ. It is only empty. But legalism also promotes some other things that appear to be impressive. It promotes asceticism and severity to the body. These things are related terms, related spheres. They refer to abstaining from food and drink. They they refer to humiliating your bodies through denial. And and the thought there, again, is that if they do this enough, if they abstain enough, if they withdraw from the world enough, they can somehow gain access to these spiritual mysteries and insights. And again, all of this looks good. It looks good when people take something seriously, when they appear to be committed to something, when they're sincere. It looks like they might have the right idea to go about life. And even if they don't, wouldn't we want to respect and be impressed with their commitment and their sincerity? Discipline is always impressive. It's ironic, but as a culture, we are habitually self-indulgent, but we are also prone to be impressed by anybody who can actually discipline themselves and deny themselves. The the Olympic Games start in a couple of weeks, and there's going to be all kinds of stories about these guys who put themselves through these incredibly rigorous regimens to get ready to do that. And we can't help but be impressed. We're impressed that these people can deny themselves all, all this food and relaxation in order to get themselves ready for one singular thing. We're all prone to be impressed by that. Think about what different actors go through to prepare for different roles. Think about the movie 300 and the guys who have these crazy abs and all the things that they had to do to get ready for those roles. I mean, you can, you can download that workout and you can see how incredibly crazy that is. We can't help but be impressed that somebody would go through all that for a movie. And we can even take this view when we know it is somebody who subscribes to what is blatantly false teaching. I remember when I was a student at Clemson, there was this group of Buddhist monks that would come in every spring to our library, and they would sit in the foyer for about a week at a time, 
and they would take individual colored grains of sand and place them one by one in these incredibly intricate patterns. They were making a sand mandala. It's this beautiful piece of artwork that is mind-bendingly detailed. And they would do that just, just sitting there for hours, for days on end. And nobody who walked by could fail to be impressed by their sincerity, their commitment, even if they disagreed with the underlying religious motives. We're tempted to be impressed by what our Muslim neighbors do when they fast during Ramadan, by what the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons do as they scatter throughout the country and throughout the world proclaiming their beliefs. But brothers and sisters, all of this discipline and even severity to the body, as impressive as it might seem, as wise as it might seem, is worthless. It is worthless. It is empty. It is without profit. That is, that is what the Greek here at the end of verse 23, there, there's a couple of different ways you can grammatically render this. You can render this as having no value for stopping the indulgence of the flesh or as a standalone phrase simply saying they have no value. None, none whatsoever, no value, no profit. As impressive as these disciplines are, as impressive as, as it might be to see somebody who is totally committed to something like this, they are ultimately of no profit, no value whatsoever. They are based on human traditions. They're just a way of living under the control of these spiritual powers. They are incompatible with the life of the Colossians who have died and been risen again with Christ. And because of all this, I want to challenge you this week to be very, very careful how you think and how you talk about the disciplines in the Christian life. Because the world thinks disciplines are great. They're going to be impressed if you tell them that you read the Bible every day, that there are certain places you don't go, certain things you don't watch, certain words you don't use. They're going to be impressed thinking that you're doing all this work to try to achieve weight loss or nirvana or enlightenment or some kind of a spiritual goal. They're all about that. Work yourself as hard as you can to achieve what you want. But Christian, your life is not about skin-deep, illusory wisdom. Your life is about the fact that God has come down to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And now he has given you prayer and Bible reading and memorization and evangelism and fasting as means of enjoying what he has purchased for you, not as means of getting to him. Be clear in your mind and in your speech about these things this week. Legalism can look wise, but it is wise in appearance only. And Paul concludes verse 23 with a final criticism of legalism, a final reason not to submit, because legalism lets the flesh rule. Now, again, there's a couple of ways we can understand the end of the verse here. We we can take this as saying that these human precepts and traditions and teachings, they look great, but they have no value. They can't withhold or restrain the indulgence of the flesh. But but it's also possible to, to take this last phrase and connect it back to the beginning of verse 23 and read it as a concessive, that even though these precepts and teachings appear to have all this wisdom, all this value in promoting self-made religion and asceticism of the body, they actually lead to indulgence of the flesh. They promote the indulgence of the flesh. But either way, legalism lets the flesh rule. It doesn't stop fleshly indulgence, and at worst, it actually promotes it. And if you've ever gone on a really severe, strict diet, you know what I'm talking about. 
Because the more you stop and think about how you're not letting yourself have cake or Oreos or ice cream, the more frustrated, the more your flesh rises up in you. And, and the closer and closer you get to finally breaking down and binging on that thing and, and indulging your flesh all over again. Another problem with this is that if you discipline your flesh and you don't address the heart, you're not really addressing the problem. We've said that already. And finally, legalism is is negative only, but it's not positive. Legalism can tell you what not to do. It can tell you stop doing those things, but it usually has very little to tell you about what to put in its place. If you're trying to give up looking at pornography, you may succeed for a time by sheer effort. But you're only going to see real lasting fruit when you replace that with the light in the beauty of Jesus Christ. And if you're trying to stop complaining about your job or about your family or, or your spouse or your kids or whatever, but you never replace complaining with thanksgiving for God's good gifts to you, you're not fighting the whole battle. These are the ways that legalism lets the flesh rule. That's the, really the great appeal of legalism is that you can look great, you can look disciplined, you can look smart and wise, and you can join in the crowd, but in the end, you're letting your flesh rule. You're staying comfortable and not having to deal with things at the heart level. You're not really having to say no to the things that would be hard to give up. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I pray that this truth would catch your heart. I pray that you would see that even a life of strictest discipline and adherence to what appears to be wise and intelligent of the world is only skin deep. It's only illusory. And I invite you instead to give up skin deep powerless legalism, and instead repent and believe in Christ. Receive the God who has worked for you so that you don't have to. And for the rest of us, I ask you this morning, are you fighting sin with the gospel? Are you turning your thoughts and the attitudes of your heart over to the one who judges them by his word? Are you seeking to live a changed life from the inside out? by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are you hoping that if you just tighten up a few outward, embarrassing, external sins, you can look good while keeping your private life hidden, while keeping your indulgence of your fleshly desires? Don't do that. Let Christ have the whole heart. Because no matter how well you keep up appearances... If your obedience to Christ goes no deeper than your skin, sooner or later, it is going to come out. Just this past week in the news, we had a story about a prominent pastor who revealed that years ago, he had abused a minor sexually. And and stories like this are becoming all too common. Almost every day, somebody with the hashtag, me too, it, it turns out that this person who looked great, who looked upstanding, moral, successful, everything we might want to be in life, had some kind of a sexual sin in their past, had done something despicable in private. Their success, their goodness, their wisdom was skin deep, and it covered up their indulgence of the flesh. It comes out sooner or later. Brothers and sisters, don't think this can't be you. We cannot settle for surface-level, illusory wisdom or obedience. We must flee to Christ. We must be changed from the inside out and bring our fleshly desires under the domination of His Holy Spirit.
Let's pray. Jesus, you have done what we could never hope to do for ourselves. Everything in our flesh wants to work our way up to you so that we can come to you on our terms, so that we can have control, so that we can look good, all the while letting our flesh rule and doing whatever it is we want when nobody's watching. Thank you, Jesus, that instead you came down to us and that we have died in you to this world. It has no control over us. There's no reason for us to submit any longer to what it says. This week, Lord, would you help us to turn more and more of our hearts over to your Holy Spirit, to live more and more from the heart in obedience to you, believing in your word, trusting that what you have done is enough, and not seeking worldly traditions or worldly standards to supplement your gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.